Are we all part of one human tribe? You know, intellectually, it's so easy to answer that question with a rousing yes. Intellectually, absolutely. I, I, I sense that we are all part of something bigger, that we're connected in a way that, that even goes without words sometimes, that we are simply one human family connected. But you know, some days it doesn't feel like that. Some days it almost feels the opposite, like we're getting in each other's way, like we're, we're fumbling in the dark and upsetting one another and creating war. And, and uh, even in our own personal relationships, does it feel like we're connected in that intimate and loving way? Well, yes and no. This month, we're using a book by Pima Chodron called Living Beautifully. And, and her thesis, which I think is a good one, is that we cause most of our own trouble. <laughs> that certainly outside events and, and places, I mean, yeah, that there are things that can be in our face from without. But her thesis statement is that probably 80 to 90% of the trouble that we experience on this planet resides right here in our own heads, and she even can talk about it in, in firmer terms, and, and I want to go with this for just a moment. She says, and I do believe it's true, that most of what we experience is uncomfortable and trouble and anxiety and strife is us in resistance to life. She talks about the idea that uh, as human beings, we, we kind of want to organize our world in a way that's pleasant to us. And, and certainly I'm all for that. But we'll get one area in our life, in our world, working kind of the way we want it to. And then what do we want to do with it? We want to lock it down for all time. When the job is running kind of well, oh my, we're resistant to new people and new rules and new bosses, aren't we? When the marriage is working really well, anything that might upset that apple cart, oh my gosh, don't we dig in our heels when our spouse changes a job or goes back to school or is without work for a while? Something that upsets our apple cart, anything that puts a, a kind of a twist in our lives, don't we just put on the brakes? We don't want it to change. We want our life to be predictable and good, always. This is the source of our misery, my friends. It doesn't seem like it should be. It doesn't seem like wanting the best for ourselves should be troublesome. And, and, and wanting the best for ourselves isn't troublesome. The trouble comes when anything that shows up unlike what we imagine to be good for us on the outside, we immediately brand it as trouble. We immediately dig in our heels. We immediately talk about the good old days before that happened or before that happened. We talk about life as though we can lock it down in some permanent position to our best interest. Well, it's just not the way that life works. The world is constantly changing. No sooner can one little area of your life seem like it's in order and working well, then what happens? Some other part of your life. It's like, remember a million years ago at the fair they had Papa Mole, where you would throw balls and try to get these little kind of crazy mole figures to knock them all down, and you'd no sooner get one down, and you'd be thinking, all right, I'm going to win the prize, then like eight more would pop up. That's the nature of life. And so Payment Children in this book, I think, wisely points out that it is our relationship to change that we can work on. 
We don't know what the changes are going to be. We just know that there are going to be some. So we can't, ahead of time, again, figure out exactly what's going to happen and how we can deal with it and how we can twist it into our own idea of the way life would be great or wonderful. But what she says we can work on is how we approach the idea of change itself. Now, she comes from the Buddhist tradition, and what I like about Pema Chodra's writings is she has that unique ability to portray something like Buddhism that most of us are not very familiar with, but speak about it in more Western and America terms, and, and that's what I love about her the best. And today, we're going to embark upon making a vow. Now, one of the Buddhist traditions, often uh, in that faith, there will be vows, vows of uh, silence, even vows of chastity if you were to become a Buddhist nun or a, or a Buddhist monk, but you know what? I think a vow is actually a good thing, and we don't need to approach it with fear. In fact, to start off, let's talk about a different kind of vow. For my joke today, I have a joke about wedding vows. So during the wedding rehearsal, the groom approached the minister with an unusual offer. Look, he said, I'll give you $100 if you'll change one of those wedding vows just for me. When you get to the part where I'm supposed to say I promise to love, honor, and obey, and forsaking all others be faithful to her forever, would you mind just leaving that part out? And so he gave the minister $100 and walked away. So the wedding is unfolding. And gosh, you know, for a traditional service, everything is just beautiful. The, the flowers and just everything. And so they're getting to the part where they do their vows. And the minister looks at the guy right in the eyes and says, Do you promise to love, honor, obey, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? Well, what's the groom supposed to do, right? There's like 150 people watching. So he kind of goes, <clears throat> I do. Afterwards, though, I can tell you, he's right there with that minister. What happened? I thought we had a deal. The minister gives him the $100 back and says, sorry. And looking over at the wife, he says, someone made me a better offer. <laughs> so, vows. Do vows need to be scary? You know, I think in America, the idea of commitment to something, the idea of taking a vow, I think from the get-go, we're a little scared. Like We're like the groom in that story, right? Can I really be faithful for the rest of my life? Can I really do whatever it is I want to do? I want to put a different spin, if you will, on the idea of making a commitment today. Because I think we're largely commitment-phobic for no good reason. Because I think it's less about the specific behaviors that happen or don't happen when you make a commitment and more about your heartfelt intentions. I think that when we make a commitment, we're not really making a commitment to the world. Uh, I mean, certainly in marriage vows, it is a commitment that the two of you are making together. But more important than that, the commitments that we make on this planet, the vows that we make, are for us. 
They're our intentions for moving forward in kind of an enlightened state. Do you know what I mean? Hopefully the commitments we make, hopefully the contracts that we make are done so in a place of elevation. We're imagining ourselves as though we were maybe a little smarter, as though we were maybe a little able to make better decisions. We're imagining, if you will, a slightly more idealized, maybe a slightly more truthful person, maybe a slightly more loving person. And so our commitment is to raise ourselves up. We're not doing it for the world. Well, I mean, we can. I mean, certainly commitments are good, and in marriage vows, both partners benefit from it. But I want to tell you what it's really doing is it's asking me to be better for me. A vow is about me elevating myself, making a commitment to a better way of my life, a better way of being in the world, expressing more love, being more truthful, being more honest. When I make a commitment, even if it's an outward commitment to uh, signing a job contract or an outward commitment like a, a marriage vow or, or something else, yes, it has benefit to the world, but it's changing me. I'm the one, really, that stands to benefit from making a commitment. In this book, let me read to you how uh, Pima Chodron talks about this idea of commitment. She says, as the dictionary defines it, a commitment is a pledge. It's something that binds us emotionally and mentally to someone or something or some course of action. But in Tibetan Buddhism, traditionally, we view it as living by commitment. It's more than simply acting or not acting in a certain way. For us, taking a vow or making a commitment allows us not to act reflexively when things come up. It's simply thinking twice before speaking or acting. And so, for the Buddhist tradition, the idea of making a commitment is simply that we're going to put a filter in place. Rather than doing those knee-jerk reactions, rather than being in that place of, uh, and again, back to that idea of change that I talked about earlier, rather than suddenly something new happens, something we're not expecting happens, rather than us just reacting, rather than us just putting on the brakes and doing that, that... I don't want this to change. We're going to put a little bit of a filter in there. We're actually going to pause. We're going to think, could this change be a good thing? Could this thing that's happening be important to me? Do I need to be in resistance to it, honestly? Or might my input into actually moving the change forward be a good thing? So this idea of commitment, this idea of putting in a filter here, we can use it in a variety of ways. One of the ways we're going to use it today, um, right out of this lovely book, is we're going to make a commitment. I'm going to ask each of us to make a commitment to do no harm. It's one of the first commitments that one makes as being a Buddhist. And I'll tell you, in the Buddhist tradition, it has some pieces that go with it. And I'll talk about them one at a time. But what I know is... 
We don't have to commit, and in fact, we shouldn't commit to something that we don't understand and that we don't have a way of defining for ourselves. So even as I'm reading what this commitment entails, my invitation to you would be, what does this mean to me? What does doing no harm mean in my life? How can I apply this Buddhist idea into my, making my world a better place? What is the commitment that I can make to further myself? Because it isn't just about what I do and what I don't do. It's my commitment to uphold life. You know, I, I entitled this talk, Long, Li- Long Live Life, Because I don't think it's about refraining from harm as much as it is celebrating the good. It's about understanding that the things I do can hold up life, can celebrate it, can move it forward, can create more of it. All right, on to what our commitment is today. First of all, in Buddhist tradition, the elements of not causing harm, first of all, it means that I'll protect life. It means that when I see someone in danger, it means that when I'm in danger, I'm going to do what I need to do to put some protection in place here. I'm going to make sure that harm is not caused to the people that matter to me and to myself. I'm going to respect life. I'm going to celebrate life. I'm going to elevate life. The second one is, I will respect what belongs to others. Now, in other religious traditions, you might hear it as, thou shalt not steal. And, and I, you know, I think this is interesting, because in modern society, I don't know that I need to give a lecture to anyone about not stealing, and that stealing isn't a cool thing. But I want to think for a moment about this in a metaphysical way. I doubt that there's anyone here in the room that actively steals from people. But do we sometimes steal people's attention or time? Do we sometimes drain the energy out of the people that we care about the most without their permission or their liking? Are we aware of when we're actually draining the life force from the people that we love the most? Are we sensitive, if you will, to asking whether something is an imposition? Are we sensitive in being aware of when we might be stealing from another person, not from their pocketbook, but from their heart, from their energy, from their expertise, from their availability. So I would ask you to take a look at that one. The next one, and these, uh, and, and this one you might laugh about too, because again, I think we Americans have a pretty good idea of, of what is meant by this. It's not, I will not harm others through sex. And, uh, and, and this is something, right, coming from the Buddhist tradition, we wouldn't think that the average Buddhist worries too much maybe about causing harm through sex. But it isn't the idea of rape, although of, of course we're not going to engage in that. Again, the idea is, to what degree do we use our sexual energy in a good way, in a welcome way, Or in what way do we use our sexual energy just to get what we want out of life? So I ask you again just to examine that. Are we sure that in our lovemaking with the people we care about that it really is lovemaking? Are we sure that occasionally we don't use our sexual energy just to get stuff or to get our own way? Are we sure that lovemaking is lovemaking? Now, the last two, I saved these last two because they're the ones that I have the most trouble with. I'm going to just own up to that right away. 
Next to the last one is I will use mindful speech. Oh my gosh, can my mouth get me in trouble sometimes. <laughs> now there is a place for being frank. Do you know what I mean? Not, not being the person frank, but there, is a time, <laughs> but there is a time and a place to really speak what's on your mind and to not mince words about it. And what I believe is that if someone interprets that wrong and is harmed by that, well then that's their deal. If I have spoken from the heart what's true for me and intentionally not done anything to be mean about it as I say it, if I'm just neutral and, and stating what's true for me, if someone chooses to feel harmed by that, I think that's their deal. But how often have I actually said things that are laden with harmful ideas and intentions? How often have I labeled a group of people disparagingly? How often have I stated my view as though it were the correct view, thus saying everybody else's way of doing it is wrong? These are actually hurtful things. Anytime I say something that through me choosing words such that someone else is put down or uh, said that they're not as good as me by, by me elevating myself up, Anytime I do those kinds of things, I'm actually doing harm to the universe, certainly to the people around me. And by doing that, I'm subtly saying that some of us are better than others of us. And I don't believe that to be true. I think we all have the same spiritual connection with God. I think we all have the same access to the goodness and the love and the joy of life. None of us, in that sense, are better or poorer than anyone else. And when I use my voice to imply that, to say that, uh, the people I'm talking about aren't the only ones that are diminished. It is me as well. So what about that filter thing? We talked a minute ago about a filter. What would it be like if every time you had an idea and were just ready to act on it or speak about it, what if we simply ran it through a filter that just asked something like, what would love do? What would love say? What if we just ran it through a very simple filter that said, what I'm about to do or what I'm about to say, will it cause any harm? I think this could change the world. I think this one thing could dramatically change the world. If each one of us filtered just for like two seconds. You know, I've actually been working on this one for some time, and those of you who've known me for a few years, I actually read about this and took this vow to uh, cause no harm a couple years ago. And people have said that I have subtly changed, that when I'm in a meeting and the voices kind of get heated and there's differences of opinion and people are, I don't want to say arguing, but kind of a, approaching something from the idea that some people may win and some people may lose and my opinion is more important than someone others, people will say, you know, Larry, you used to pitch right in and now you get kind of quiet. When I get kind of quiet, I've got that filter in because what I have learned about me is I need to pause a minute. I need to really think about, is what I say important? Is what I say just another opinion? Is what I'm about to say going to be useful for everyone? Or is it apt to cause harm? And my policy, if any of you have noticed me being really silent, is if I can't figure out what to say that won't harm anyone, I just don't say anything. These filters can be amazingly useful. 
I honestly think if it's sometimes at some of these high political summits, if everyone just sat around the table and was silent, <laughs> that there would be a lot more peace in the world. Do you know what I mean? The last thing that goes along with this idea of causing no harm is another one that I have some trouble with. And, and so, uh, again, I'm speaking from my own heart here. Not causing harm also includes me. And so the last part of this vow is I will protect my own mind and my own body. Aren't we our worst critics? Don't many of us have a, a constant little voice in the back of our head that's saying, I'm not quite good enough. I could have done that better. Uh, you know, I, I, I've looked better. Uh, you know, my body's falling apart. And, and, and going with that, often, don't we just do dreadful things to ourselves? Don't sometimes we, we just pick food that we know will, will upset our stomachs? Don't we choose courses of action that we know will leave us hungover or crazy? Don't, don't we do do the things to ourselves that absolutely cause harm. We are included in life. When we harm ourselves, we are harming more than just ourselves. Our family suffers. Our loved ones suffer. When we give ourselves a, a line of BS about not being good enough or not being powerful enough or having to settle for something less than that, we think that we're only affecting us, but we're not. We're telling the rest of the world that some of us are inferior. We're telling the rest of the world that it's okay to suppress someone, even if it's only ourselves. So when we do a commitment to cause no harm, I want us, I want us as individuals making that vow or that commitment to place ourselves right on that list to make sure that we are not doing any harm to one another. Now, some of you may be asking, if the whole purpose of this book, if the purpose of this book is to not be in resistance to change, if the purpose of this book is to live beautifully through accepting change better, why are we talking about a vow of causing no harm? And what I like about this book is she has both a Buddhist answer to that question and a very Western, science of mind almost answer to that question. I'll do the Western one first. She says that... By causing no harm to the universe, the universe is much less likely to want to cause us harm. And if you're Christian, you know, that fits in with the, uh, the idea of treating your neighbor as you would want yourself treated. In the science of mind tradition here, what it means is the law of cause and effect, that if I put negativity out in the world, I can expect negativity. And if I start cleaning my act up and cause no harm in my words and my deeds and my action, well, that's the message I'm saying, that the way life should treat me. And so when those changes, those inevitable changes come to me, they're apt to be put in a language that's much nicer. Then the very nature of the changes themselves are much likely to be positive to, be, to me, to be life-affirming to me. If I'm spewing out a lot of negativity, what am I doing? I'm creating the negative changes in other people's life. So why wouldn't life treat me that way? So whether you call it the golden rule, whether you, you know, call it one of the, the commandments brought down by Moses, it doesn't really matter whether it's cause and effect or whatever. We can expect to be treated the way we treat others. And so when we cause no harm, the universe will hold us in that same light. 
and even in the changeability of the world, what I can guess and what I can know is that the changes won't be so harmful. The changes will be easier for us to take. Okay, that's the Western reason why taking this vow of doing no harm is useful for us. What about the Eastern one? What about the Buddhist view? The Buddhists would simply say it's all about employing that filter. When we put that filter of awareness in, when we take another look at what we're going to say before we say it, when we take that second glance at what we're going to do before we do it, it gives us a pause long enough to see the truth of what's going on. And so when we do this, when, when some change comes our way, aren't we often just in that place of reaction? But when those filters are up, we're up to see it for what it is. If uh, the new coworker comes uh, and, and is asking for training at work, rather than the initial reaction of, oh, great, now I have to train someone else, and that's going to be a mess, and that's going to be trouble. If we take that pause to think how we're going to react to it, maybe we'll go see it as less work total to go around. Do you know what I mean? When we really begin to evaluate a change, it may have its pluses. You know, there's the, the story that they tell us in ministerial school about what new ministers are supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. And the classic example is the brand new minister that comes in on their first day, they reorganize the sanctuary. Do you know what happens to those new ministers? They usually last about three months. It's because people are attached to the darndest things. Now, the new minister might coming in, like in our sanctuary right here, right? I can be a chair Nazi, too. I might say, you know, nobody wants to... I'm looking at Matthew kind of over there behind the pillar, right? And so the perfect new minister would say, no, we need to get the aisles just right so that, you know, everyone can see the stage and we'll reorganize, you know, really having more, you know, and would change everything, Right? People would hate that. It's enough that you would get used to me as a new minister without me changing every darn thing out there. When we have our Buddhist filters in place, though, when we recognize that change is inevitable, and I'm really going to evaluate, before I say something, before I get into a reaction, before I have that visceral feeling about, no, I don't want to change, when we pause we might actually see the benefits of some of these changes. The other piece of it that Pima Chodun points out that I think is really important is when we're in reaction, do we contribute anything of our own to the changes coming our way? No, we don't. When we're in a complete reaction to something that's going to happen to us, when we're pulling back and fighting, we don't have any say in, in how it's going to play out. When we recognize that change is an, is an inevitability, then we launch into it. We're working with it. Our own desires and expressions of how the change might go happen with it. Suddenly the change can be more by our design or at least by our input. There are all kinds of reasons why reacting to change spells trouble. Being able to look at change, being able to evaluate it calmly, being able to step back, put those filters in before we say something, before we do something. This is how the world moves smoothly.
So I'm going to close today with a bit of homework for you, and I hope you're okay with this. Uh, the homework is, I would like you to take the challenge, if you will. I would like you to take the vow or make the commitment to do no harm. Now, because I believe that commitments are important, because I believe that vows are a bit of sacredness between ourselves and God, of course, I want you to figure out what your vow of doing no harm means to you, right? Because, you know, I, I read some of the Buddhist ideas, but what does doing no harm mean to you? Certainly, I hope it includes putting that filter in that you'll watch what you're going to say before you say it, that you're going to watch what you do before you're going to do it. But how do you upscale a little bit in your own life about doing no harm? A few years ago, um, I decided to become a vegetarian, and I've been actually vegetarian now for over 10 years. Someone the other day pointed out something curious to me. They said, Larry, um, what about the leather in those shoes? It's like, so you don't eat them, but you don't mind if their outsides get tanned and turned into leather? The idea of a vow is that it stretches us. The idea of taking a commitment to do no harm means we're going to move in that direction. So I would like to say, yeah, this is probably my last pair of leather shoes. Do you know what I mean? Because I don't need to do that. That's another way that I can contribute to more life on the planet. Now, am I asking anyone here to be vegetarian? Am I asking anyone here to, to, to not use leather? No, not at all. What I want you to do is simply stretch a bit in your current view of upholding and celebrating life, whatever that might be. So maybe you simply want to take a look at some of the products you use every day and decide if using those products means that someone in China suffers a little bit because they're not getting paid enough to produce those products. I want you to simply look at some aspect of your life, just do a little introspection around it, and then make a vow around improving the quality of life on the planet. Maybe it's as simple as doing an energy audit of your house because we know that if we save energy the planet benefits from it that life is held up it could be the most simple things and I want to give you an example of it so I actually took out uh, my little notebook and I said all right what does a commitment to doing no harm what does that mean to me what would I like specifically to commit to and here is what I wrote down and I simply invite you as your homework this week to try to figure out what your own commitment of doing no harm would look like. Here's mine. My commitment to not cause harm. I'm committed to self-awareness such that I will not commit harm to others or myself. And in particular, I will monitor my communications and actions for harmful content. That's that filter thing. I will watch myself talk and I will end it if it's negative. I will be sensitive to and curtail purchases and products that cause direct or indirect harm to myself and others. I will watch what I eat and drink and make sure it's healthy. That's the commitment to doing no harm to myself. I will be open to an awareness of other ways that I might be harming myself or others, and I will review this commitment and update it at least annually. I would like each one of us, if you're willing, to make a commitment this week to do no harm. You get to define what it is. I invite you to journal a little bit about it. If you want to write it up as I did, I think that would be a cool thing because then you can kind of measure yourself up against it. 
Um, but I think we're going to have a little fun with this. So the next couple of weeks, we have a couple more commitments we're going to make. They, again, they, I think they'll be very simple. It's so simple just to say, I'm committed to not harming life. I'm going to close with a quote and a prayer. And then we can be off to our fun picnic together. Here's what Pima Chodron says about this particular commitment to causing no harm. She says, The commitment to not causing harm is very clear-cut. The only way to break it is to speak or act out of a confused mind. The simplicity and clarity of this commitment helps us to build an unshakable foundation of our own inner strength and goodness. This manifests as the courage to take a chance and the courage not to act in the same old unproductive ways. It builds confidence in our ability to live without a game plan, to live unfettered by fear. When people make this commitment, they begin to change for the better. Let us pray. There is one power, one presence. There is one joy, one life. There is one goodness. There is one tribe of humanity. There is one life. That life is God's life. And because that life is everywhere, I know it means me. I know it means the people in this room. I know that each one of us is a part of God's family, a part of God itself. And so I know for myself on this day that I will do no harm to this tribe of mine, that life, life is sacred. And I invite each person in this room to know in their own hearts and for their own selves what this idea of causing no harm means on an individual basis. And whether you make this pledge in a formal way in, in your own lives or, or whether it is simply the speaking of these words that anchors that thought of long live life into your being, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for being here in the presence of God as it shows up in these hearts, in these hands. Grateful for life. I just let it be. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for being here today.